So you know, uh, and I know you guys know the scammers and frauds have been around for ages, right? Separating unsuspecting folks from their fortunes, selling fake cures and phony remedies, deceiving people into doing any number of things that they should have known better than to do, like send me gift cards. Uh, you may have even been taken in a time or two yourself. Uh, and because being a shyster is such a lucrative business, it's not likely to slow down anytime soon, uh, especially in this age of digital communication, uh, where our day-to-day -day lives you know, are just filled with, with robocalls and email chains and slick come-ons uh, that you have to be constantly on the alert to keep from being taken advantage of. So, so we're wary, in some sense, of, of when other people are trying to deceive us, but how often do we take the time to apply that same sense of vigilance to our own personal lives, right? Uh, how wary are we of misleading ourselves and becoming a victim of our own self-deception? I don't just mean in worldly things, but in spiritual things. And we're gonna be exploring that idea uh, today as we continue our summertime look through the book of Acts, uh, picking up in Acts chapter eight with what, uh, I took a little informal poll in Sunday school, uh, what for many may be a, a unlikely and lesser-known character in the New Testament by the name of Simon Magus. And the text actually today picks up uh, immediately where we left off last week at the execution uh, death of St. Stephen as the first martyr of the newly founded Christian church, uh, and also at the foreshadowing appearance of Saul of Tarsus as the witness and coat wrangler to the murderous mob that he'd become a part of. And so we're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 8. I'm actually going to be reading almost the whole thing, just with the exception of the very last verse. <clears throat> so I hope you're following along in your own Bible in front of you. We're looking at Acts chapter 8, beginning immediately where we left off last week at the death of Stephen. And we're told, uh, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did... For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the crowds of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid, him, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
And now Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you uh, for the faithful testimony of your early church and of your apostles. Thank you for uh, the witness of the moving of your Holy Spirit through all of these regions. And we ask, Lord, uh, for that same spirit this morning as we approach this message, uh, that your word we can go forward today in this place even as it did then, uh, because you promised that it won't return to you in vain, but accomplish all your purposes. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, ultimately it's been said that self-deception... Uh, is the opposite of self-awareness. And for many people, the most difficult deception to fight against are the ones, uh, the lies, the deceptions they tell to themselves, right? I mean, if you think about it for a minute, it's really easy to spot errors in other people. Uh, And it seems, honestly, we usually relish the idea of correcting uh, the mistakes and the misinformation in our friends and in our families, uh, with our neighbors. But then we kind of struggle in confronting our own, don't we? And in today's reading, we see that kind of played out in the life of Simon Magus. Simon, we read, was a magician in Samaria. And he'd become rich and and influential by the use of both sleight of hand mixed with dark spiritual forces to amaze and bewitch the townsfolk with his work. Uh, And as we read, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man uh, is the power of God that's called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But then something changed. The apostle Philip came to town. And again, as we read, Philip uh, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So, So now the amazing Simon wasn't so amazing anymore, wasn't he? Now the magic... Uh, and all the parlor tricks and the mumbled incantations that he was doing was only uh, a, a sideshow. And more than that, the genuine miracles and demonstrations of power that accompanied Philip's preaching made Simon's little spells look like a second grader's attempt at a talent night magic show. Till even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing the signs and great miracles performed. Now he was amazed. And who wouldn't be? But the question is, was he really converted? I mean, yes, the verse says he believed, but as the Apostle James reminds us later, uh, he says, you surely believe there is only one God. That's fine. Even demons believe this, and they shake with fear. William Webster said of this, faith must involve more than just the ascent of the mind to objective truth about God and Christ and salvation. Uh, The demons believe in that sense, but they perish. R.C. Sproul wrote along those same lines saying, If I am merely intellectually aware of the works of Jesus, convinced that he is the Son of God, 
that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead, I would at that point qualify to have the same knowledge as a demon. Uh, church, the demons believe, but they remain demons. Demons are not atheists. Demons believe there is a God and they tremble at the thought of him. Uh, they knew all about him and his power. They knew Christ when he was here. They recognized his power and position, but they never experienced a change of heart, just like Simon Magus didn't. Uh, only no one around him knew it at the time, and perhaps not even he himself as he settled into the comfortable role of what we'd call today uh, cultural Christianity. And then at that point, we find out that uh, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And you know, brothers and sisters, the worldly church and its wares may be for sale, but the gospel is not. And just to refine the point a little further, I want you to think of the stark contrast between the life of Simon Magus and what we see in Saul of Tarsus as his life progressed if you remember when Saul was converted, even though he'd been a fierce persecutor of God's people, even though he was active in trying to prevent the spread of the gospel originally, he became a completely different person. He became a whole new creation in Christ. And far from seeking his own advantage, he tells us in Philippians 3, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for this I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. It depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That's a change. Remember, Simon wanted to gain more. Paul wanted to give everything. Simon would have just as soon held on to his sorcery unless he could pay money for greater power and influence over other people. The Apostle Paul was willing to give up popularity and position and everything he had of any worth for the sake of growing closer to Jesus. Simon, on the other hand, had seen the power of the Holy Spirit. He'd seen converts being saved and changed and transformed and yet in the midst of all of that his mind was only still on himself and on the prospect of personal gain which is why Peter went on to say to Simon you have no part or share in our work because your heart is not right in God's sight repent then of this evil plan of yours and pray to the Lord that he will forgive you for thinking such a thing as this for I see that you are full of bitter envy and are a prisoner of sin. And you know, brothers and sisters, and we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, uh, sadly that same could be said of hundreds of millions of folks who walk around every day thinking that they are Christians and that they are believers when in reality they are not. It's a difference between what theologians call the visible church and the invisible church. If you don't know what I mean by that, the visible church is, is the outward structure. It's the clergy. It's, it's all the folks that fill the seats and claim 
to be Christians. They're, they're everybody that we see around us when we're here. The invisible church, on the other hand, is the church that only Christ can see. It exists exclusively of those who are truly born again and new creatures, new creatures in Christ. Uh, the people in the visible church can be true believers. They could be false believers. We don't know. We can't tell. I, I can't see inside your heart. Uh, you, you, you can't see inside mine. We can only guess by the fruit your life produces. And, and just incidentally, it's why guys like Judas Iscariot and Simon Magus could skate along for such a long time as part of the group as long as they did. The invisible church, on the other hand, is where separation begins because genuine Christianity is not comprised merely of religious patterns or church attendance or tithing or taking communion. As vitally important as all of those things are, no, true Christianity is the manifestation of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in those who are saved and who are redeemed. Uh, pastor and teacher uh, James Montgomery Boyce adds to this thought saying, uh, and let that serve as a warning to anyone who thinks that just because he or she has made a mere profession of faith or has gone through certain motions expected of Christians, that he or she is right with God for that reason. And I, I know I, I've shared this story uh, in Bible study before, but I think it's worth repeating. I, I actually had a lady about five years ago or so uh, say to me, you know, I, I don't believe anything that's printed on the back of your bulletin. You know, we have our... We have our distinctives on the back of the bullets and all the things, I guess it's on the inside now. All the things that we believe, right? You guys have seen this? I said, I don't, I don't believe any of that. Um, I said, I don't believe in the virgin birth. I don't believe in the infallibility of scripture. I don't believe in the fact of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. But she said, I did say the sinner's prayer once just as a precaution. <laughs> kind of like fire insurance, Right? Now, again, I, I can't see into people's hearts, but do you think that lady was saved? I don't. Do you think that lady thinks she is? That she thinks she's headed to heaven when she dies? Probably. She probably thinks she'll skate in because she, she said she enjoyed coming to church and she liked singing hymns and she'd been in a choir when she was younger. But you see, just like Simon, she wanted just the parts of church that she wanted. She wanted just what she could get out of church instead of what Christ wanted to do in and through her. And the truth is that neither of them, not this lady and not Simon, were the least bit sorry for how they felt. They just didn't want to face any negative consequences for it. And all you have to do is just look at what Simon said in reply to Peter's rebuke and call to repentance. Simon answered and said to him, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. That doesn't sound much like a, an I'm sorry, does it? Uh, unless maybe it's just an I'm sorry I got caught. See, Simon still has only one thing on his mind, and that's self-preservation. The bottom line was still his own welfare. And demonstrating, as one commentator said, the fear of punishment rather than love for God. And he had good reason to be afraid. So does anyone listening to this message today that's not sure that they are right with Christ as you're hearing this? Anyone who doesn't already know that they know that when they take their last breath here on this earth that their next breath will be in heaven? Anyone who cannot honestly answer the question as to whether or not they are saved or self-deceived? Uh, and brothers and sisters, that's not a question to take lightly. Especially when we already know how easily we can fool ourselves. 
And the importance of making sure that we understand God's answer to this question is augmented by the fact that Scripture repeatedly warns us concerning the eternal consequences of being wrong. For example, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The Apostle James warns his readers with these words. He says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is what? Worthless. And our Lord Jesus himself gave this warning to his hearers in Matthew 7. He said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now that's scary stuff, guys. But now for the good news. There's actually several really good ways and good resources to arrive at the right answer to the question of our salvation. But because I have such a very brief time left, I'm going to limit myself to just one. And that's to the ministry of the Apostle John, who, if you remember, was kind of the silent witness to this whole event with Simon Magus as it went down in Samaria. Remember we read that the home church right in Jerusalem sent Peter and John down to Samaria. So John was the guy who was right beside Peter's side hearing and seeing everything that happened. And you can't really pick this up from the English text, uh, but the, the grammar of the original Greek in the story kind of really points heavily to the fact that Simon Magus was speaking to both Peter and John when he made his greedy offer. And so I think, I think John is the right guy to round us out this morning. Uh, in fact, the Apostle John himself tells us that answering the question of the assurance of our salvation was one of the central reasons he wrote his first letter. He said to his readers, uh, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So you can know. And here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say sit around all day and check in with your feelings to see if you feel like you're saved. Because uh, they're not always particularly reliable, are they? I love this little poem that Martin Luther uh, said. He put it like this. He said, feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there's one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. It's another thing John doesn't do. He doesn't tell his readers they should sit around and contemplate or write down the exact day that they themselves made a decision for Christ and look back to that date whenever they have questions or whenever they have doubts. Nor does he encourage them in, in times of wondering about their salvation and whether they're truly saved to look back at past experiences or to try to relive the thrill of some spiritual high. But rather, throughout his letter, John identifies the present convictions and the patterns of life that are unmistakable fruits of the new birth and the saving union with Jesus Christ. That's why in, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we feel like it. Now, what does it say? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then he adds, don't love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh... 
the desires of the eye, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame from his coming. That verse is always just gets me. What do you want Jesus to find you doing when he comes back? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. In this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now, brothers and sisters, does that mean that as believers we're always going to be perfect? No. Yeah. Uh, does that mean we're never going to fall into old habits and old sinful patterns? No. What it does mean is that the best evidence of your salvation and the assurance of your redemption is wrapped up in the question, do I find myself loving Jesus and the things of his kingdom more and more as the years go by? Am I really and truly looking expectantly for his second coming and longing for it more and more? Do I love to be among God's people and read his word and sing his praises? Uh, and I can say that's definitely happening here, guys, because, you know, we have 90 people in church on Sunday and almost half of them come back for midweek Bible study. I don't think that happens in too many places. Uh, and that's a testament not to us in particular, but to the Holy Spirit. Uh, but to be among God's people and, and to read his word, to sing his praises, uh, if you're doing that, I can almost guarantee you you're on the right track. There's just one thing left. Romans chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For as the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Have you done that yet? Have you called out to the Lord Jesus for your redemption? Have you made a public profession of that faith before a body of believers like this one? If you have, brothers and sisters, you can go home assured. And if you haven't, I say to you today, don't wait. Repent. Believe the gospel. Be baptized. Be saved. The Lord is coming soon, and his day and his coming are closer than you may think. Will you pray with me? God, our Father. We ask you, Lord, by your love and your mercy and your Holy Spirit, we ask you to breathe your breath of life now on all those who you're calling into your flock. And, Lord, may it be many. We ask you, Lord, to open the eyes and soften the hearts and uh, to be the light of the gospel. We ask you, Lord, to raise up a new Christendom from the ashes of this fallen nation, Lord, that, that you may get the glory in all that you redeem. Showing the world, Lord, that you and you alone can save through Jesus Christ and assuring us of our own eternal security in you. And in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.